For those that are visiting with us this morning, let me just catch you up a little bit. We have been looking at a sermon series entitled, In Need of a Prophet. It's looking how specifically the prophet Elijah responded to the very difficult time under the reign of the wicked King Ahab. We've been walking through that, especially last few chapters of First Kings, as we looked at the failures of King Ahab. And that continues this morning as we work through the last part of chapter 22 of First Kings. We'll be reading verses this morning, 29 through 40, and uh, we'll be rereading and revisiting the text through the message. So I encourage you, if you have your Bibles open, to keep them open once I finished reading. Again, from 1 Kings chapter 22, starting in verse 29. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale of armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until that evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria. And the dogs licked up his blood and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that had been spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I was contemplating this text, I started to contemplate an interesting phenomenon that I think I see pretty regularly when it comes to humans' response to promises. When someone makes a positive promise to us, we expect that they are going to keep their word, that they will be faithful to those promises. However, if someone gives us a promise of a warning or a judgment, well, those promises, we assume, they might be negotiable. Or we can edit those if, if we get ourselves struck. So of the many examples I could think of at the start of a school year, I was thinking of our students. If a teacher says, these are the criteria that you have to meet on this project, and if you meet this criteria, you will receive an A. And so you turn in your project, and you feel, and you know you met all of that criteria, but if you get a grade less than an A back, what are you going to do? You're going to go to that teacher and you said, no, you said these were the criteria. I met the criteria. I have earned and deserve an A. Give it to me. 
And you may accuse that teacher of violating their word. But if that very same teacher says, I promise you that if you turn in any project late, you're going to get a zero on it. And you happen to not complete a project and you don't get it done by the deadline. What are you going to do? You're going to walk to that teacher and you're going to say, can we make some adjustments here? I don't want you to keep that promise. I don't want you to keep that word. Let's negotiate. Let's see if I can still get some credit for doing the project a little late, despite what you had said earlier. Those are a word we don't want them to keep. And while we do that with teachers, children, we do that with our parents all of the time, people do it with employers, we do it with the government, we want them to keep their good promises but we want to negotiate the bad promises. And we do it with God. We celebrate a God of great promises, a God who is faithful, who makes so many good, good promises to us in his word. But we also recognize that in all of those good promises, God has throughout scripture several warnings, several things that he says, if you do this, there is a consequence that will be faced. But when it comes to those, we want to negotiate. We want to find a work, a work around those issues, and we want to avoid those promises while trusting in the good ones. As I had mentioned, we have been in 1 Kings for quite a while, and, and we are in chapter 22 now, the third sermon on this particular uh, chapter. And this chapter started with Ahab's desire to want to go to the city of Ramoth Gilead and reclaim it from the hands of the Assyrians who had taken it from him. And last week, in making the decision of whether or not to go to battle, we finally highlighted that Ahab had all of the information he needed. He knew what he wanted in his heart to go and fight. He had gathered around him a whole bunch of yes men who had confirmed that bias and had supported him in that decision. But last week we saw he had also heard the word of the Lord through Micaiah. And that word told Ahab that if he went into battle, he would lose his life. And he also explained why the other prophets were lying to him because of the lying spirit that had been put into them. And I left last week with us wondering, what is Ahab going to choose? Well, let's revisit this text section by section and find out the answer immediately. Let's start by looking at 29 and 30. It says, so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. So it doesn't take us long to find out the answer to that question, what are they going to choose? And we're not surprised by the answer. Once again, Ahab ignores the word of the Lord, almost pretends as if he never heard it, and he ends up choosing to go with what he wanted to do from the very beginning and what all of the other prophets had told him to do, virtually ignoring the word of the Lord. Virtually. Because as confident as he was that Micaiah had been telling him an absolute lie, as assured as he was at the end of the last week's text where he put Micaiah in prison saying, when I come back, I'm going to rub it in your face that you were wrong and that's when you're going to be released. But when he's about to go into battle, Ahab decides he's going to hedge his bets a little bit. 
he had heard the word, and so he wants to protect himself in some way. And so he decides to come up with this plan. In order to help prevent this prophecy from coming true, he was going to wear the disguise of an ordinary soldier, and he was encouraging Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, who was going with him into battle, to go ahead and wear the robes of his kingly title. Now, why Jehoshaphat would agree to this plan, I don't know. But I know why Ahab would come up with it. This is what people do. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, what's the very first thing that they did? They tried to hide from God and his presence what had taken place. And it's the very same thing that we do over and over again. When we know that we are going outside the bounds of God's will and his desire, what do we do? We find a secret place where no one else can see. We turn off tracking on our phones so no one follows where we were. We tell lies to cover up what took place and what was happening. And we think and we deceive ourselves in our mind that if we can hide our sin from other people, well, then we won't have to face the consequences or be exposed in that sin. And we might get away with it for a while. But let's continue. Verses 31 through 33, it says, Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, Fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Uh, by itself, this text reveals the, the action plan, the, the battle strategy of the Syrian army. And their desire was not to fight against all of the lowly soldiers, but the quickest path toward victory in defending the city of Ramoth Gilead would be to go directly after Ahab and take his life, and that would be their victory. But it's interesting to compare that strategy to the broader context of the story that we've had the privilege to see, especially when we compare this to chapter 20. So let me remind you that chapter 20 revealed the fact that this wasn't the first time that the Israelites and the Syrians had gone to battle. In chapter 20, God had given Ahab for no reason this great promise that despite the great overwhelming odds against him, he would win a victory. And that's exactly what happened. In these two victories, in these two battles, unexplainably, God led the Israelites in a great victory against the Syrians. We are told even that in that second battle, 127,000 foot soldiers of Syria died in one day. But when that victory was ready to be secured and finalized, the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, pleaded for his life in the presence of Ahab. And instead of finishing the victory and killing the king as God has instructed, Ahab agreed to allow him to live. He invited him up into his chariot and he made a treaty with Ben-Hadad, a treaty that Ben-Hadad did not keep and led to all of these problems of chapter 22. And in this battle, Ben-Hadad instructs his army to do the complete opposite of what had happened in chapter 20. He said, forget about all of the foot soldiers and go only after the king. For in there, there is victory. Which leads us to wonder, 
Why had Ahab ignored God's word to kill Ben-Hadad and finish the battle in chapter 20? And if Ahab had listened to those instructions to kill off Ben-Hadad in chapter 20, how would that have changed things in chapter 22? And in asking that question, we realized from the very beginning that God's commands had been for the benefit of Ahab. And if he would have been obedient in chapter 20, he very well may have been alive in chapter 22. But Ahab tries to find his way around that word. And again, he disguises himself, and for a while, that works. You can see why he chose to hide himself amongst the normal soldiers and put Jehoshaphat in the center of attention, and he gets it. But when he cries out, whether how he cried or what he said in his cry, it revealed to everyone that that wasn't Ahab. And so the general battle gets enunciated, or, or gets commenced, and then we move forward to verse 34, that said... In that battle, a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. Ahad's disguise had worked for a while. The Syrians had no idea which of all of the soldiers was actually the king of Israel or whether he was on the battlefield at all. But the disguise didn't fool God. And even though no one was targeting Ahab in particular, the text says that a certain guy just shot a random arrow at the Israelites. And this random arrow just so happened to not only find the king of Israel, but to strike him in just the right place where his breastplate and his shield of ar or his uh, scales of armor we're exposing a vulnerability, and that's where he got hit. But had it been random? Had Ahab almost fooled God, but just got unlucky in the middle of it? Well, let's read on. Verses 35 through 38. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians, until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria. And the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. As much as Ahab had thought that he could find a way around the word of the Lord, what we see very clearly in this text is that immediately three prophecies had been fulfilled. After letting Ben-Hadad live in chapter 20, a prophet had disguised himself as an ordinary soldier and pronounced a judgment upon Ahab, saying in verse 42 of chapter 20, Because you have left go out of your hand the man whom I have devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. In chapter 21, after stealing the vineyard of Naboth, 
Elijah said to Ahab in 1 Kings 21, 19, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. And earlier in this chapter, when consulted about whether or not to go to uh, the battle, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Micaiah when he said in verse 17, I saw all Israel scattered in the mountains as sheep that had no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his, own in pe- to his home in peace. And if those illusions aren't enough, it is stated abundantly clearly in verse 38 of our text that they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria and the dogs licked up his blood and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. And that's the point of this whole passage. Ahab didn't like God's word of warning and he tried to find a way around it that he could avoid the consequences of what had been said. But God's word is not negotiable. There was no way around it, and although it was described as something happening at random, God's word was true, and Ahab did lose his life according to the word of the Lord that had been spoken. I'm going to elaborate on that point in a bit because it's the main point of the text, but let's finish out this section that we read this morning in looking at verses 39 and 40. It says, Now, the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, and the ivory house that he had built, and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the king of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. After some six chapters where the author of First Kings slowed way down in his narrative to really draw out and talk about the reign of King Ahab, we learn that in all of the things that he talked about, there was actually much more that the author is aware of that he decided not to include. And that Ahab had actually done some pretty incredible things during his reign. Makes reference to an ivory house. It's interesting that actually uh, excavators have found uh, this house. They're pretty sure they know the location of it where hundreds of ivory items and images have been gathered at this one uh, site. And there was walls paneled with ivory. That's extravagant. That is uh, such lavish richness that Ahab lived in. The text also references several cities that he built, not just one or two, but he was developing, he was growing, he had a lot of economic success. There were things in Ahab's reign that he did that the average person would look at and celebrate as a great achievement in his reign. And yet the author says, I've chosen to ignore those things and not even mention them until now. And the reason It's because in the end, all of that is completely irrelevant. Yeah, he may have had riches, he may have accomplished these things, but in the end, as a king of Israel, none of those things make a difference because the only thing that mattered as king was how did he lead his people? Did he lead them in an example of a servant of God, obedient to his word, or did he lead them away from God? And for Ahab, the answer is clear. 
His legacy was one of totally dismissing the word of the Lord. He led the people away from him rather than into his presence, setting the kind of example that a king was supposed to set. But as soon as we recognize that about Ahab, it again draws our attention back to ourselves and the concerns of this whole sermon series. Again, Common human nature is that we want to cling to and celebrate the great promises that God makes on our behalf in Scripture. Society wants to believe that there is, after death, this place called heaven. A place where all of the struggles of sin are gone and where after life we can, we can exist with no disease, no problems. It's an eternal existence of happiness, joy, and peace. And we want to believe that as, as long as we're not all that bad, that we're all going to make it there. That it doesn't take much, that, that we get those promises and everyone would be welcome just as long as they don't do any of the really, really bad things or don't make the top 10 list of worst sinners ever. And yet, we also live in a world that wants to negotiate the warnings of God. I think that God's word and directions for our lives are just options to be considered. That we can choose to obey God's word or ignore it. And that there, that choice has no consequences for us. That his word is optional, negotiable, and avoidable. It's our life. So I'm going to live it how I want. And I'll expect God to reward me at the end. And that's where we are reminded of the fact that we serve a faithful God. And so when God says that living a life in rebellion to his will and his ways will lead to struggles and problems throughout your lives, if you obey, disobey his word, you will have struggles and problems. And when God says that the wages of sin is death, that word is true also. But that's where we do go back to the promises of God. And the great good news of the gospel is that there is a path forward. But it's not up to, up to us to decide what that path forward is. But there is only one way to that eternal security. And that way is by having faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. To look at our lives and say, I know I am a sinner that has been living in rebellion against God. And I know that as a result of that, the word says, I deserve rejection from God forever and eternity in hell. But I confess my sin. And I turn to Jesus as my Savior, recognizing that when he died on the cross, he bore the consequences of my sins on himself. And he invites me into a life with him. And in that life, I turn to him as Lord. I say that since you have purchased me with your blood, I now belong to you, body and soul. And so I will surrender to your decrees and to your ways. I'm not just going to accept your gift of salvation and pretend like I can go on living my own desires in my own ways, but I will live for the God that died for me. Not so that I can earn my way into heaven, but out of the deepest gratitude for what he has done. Both sides of that are true. 
And when we surrender and we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we can know with absolute certainty that our God is faithful and he will keep those promises that all for whom Jesus died will join him in glory one day. And so, when we look at our lives and what we're about and the promises of God, the question is, are you assuming that you're going to get to heaven on your own terms, that you can live however you want to live, and then it's just as long as you didn't do it bad enough, you'll get to heaven? That is not what the scriptures say. Instead, they say there is only one way to heaven. That is by surrendering your life to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and putting your faith in him. And of all of the things that you achieve in this life, riches mean nothing. Success in business mean nothing. All that matters is what did you do with Jesus? So the invitation is to accept that great gift of grace. Today, to say that I want that relationship with the Lord to be restored, and so I'm going to look to Jesus in faith, accept him as my Lord and Savior, and to live in obedience to his will, to the best of my ability, by the guidance of his Holy Spirit. That, friends, is the only path to heaven. That is the promise of God's word. It's the good promise that is matched with the other promise that if we deny Jesus, there is only one place for us which is eternal separation from him. Turn to Christ, accept his gracious gift, and do so to his glory and honor. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, when we read these stories of the wicked King Ahab, we see ourselves and recognize that far too often we have tried to negotiate with your word and assume that your warnings and your judgments won't apply to us. We have tried to hide from you and deceived ourselves into thinking that as long as we aren't caught by other humans, that you don't see our rebellion and our rejection of you. But Lord, in that, we thank you for that path forward, for your faithful sacrifice of your son so that we can have the relationship that we broke with you restored and that there is the promise that in obedience there is life to be found in this life and in the next. I pray that everyone here would not only recognize that but give their hearts to you so that they would understand and, and receive that free path into eternal security with you. And then, Lord, may all that we live for not be for our glory, for our fame, for our wealth and progress, but may all we do be in service to you, our great King and Lord. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.